If you would, turn with me to the Gospel of Luke. We are making our way through it. This morning we return to Luke chapter 2. Remember last week we looked at 21, verses 21 through 24. Uh, We're going to anchor into this text again this morning uh, and next week. Uh, We're spending some time here just kind of thinking about uh, some of its truths and how I think it encourages us to marvel in the Lord Jesus Christ. So we're going to read that, Luke chapter 2, verses 21 through 40, if you want to follow along in your copy of God's Word as I read it. Luke chapter 2, starting in verse 21, says, And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, He took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, This child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was eighty-four. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. And this is the reading of God's perfect, inspired word. All God's people say, Amen. Amen. My question to you this morning is, are you a marveler? And when I ask that question, I do not mean what maybe your mind goes to when you hear the word marvel. I don't mean the comics. I don't mean the action movies. Are you a marveler? And by marveler, I mean, are you one who is full of awe, and wonder and astonishment? Are you full of awe and wonder at the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ? That he was conceived as as in Mary's virgin womb. 
that he was prophesied uh, by Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, and many, many others, but the prophet Isaiah, 700 years before he was born. Does that astonish you? Does it astonish you uh, that the Lord Jesus Christ came to this earth to live a life under the law, that he might fulfill the law, that he came sinless, never sinned once, and yet died a criminal's death on the cross, bore God's wrath for your sin and for mine. Do those, do those truths astonish you? Do they fill you with awe and wonder? Or perhaps, instead of being filled with awe and wonder uh, this, this time of the year, you're filled with stress. Maybe the, the pandemic, uh, or all that's going on in our nation, the violence, the unrest, uh, the, the election, the stay-at-home orders. I mean, that list goes on and on and on, right? Maybe those things have you stressed, worried, deeply concerned, and there's no room for wonder. Or perhaps you're uh, too rushed, you're, you're trying to, to bake every treat, to, to knock everything off your list, to, to wrap every present, or maybe this morning you're weary and worn and flat out exhausted. And what you need is a refreshing of the soul. I think we find that in our text, the refreshing of the soul. We find reasons to marvel in our text. And last week I gave you the one, one reason to marvel is because Jesus has fulfilled the law. He was born of a woman under the law to redeem us from the curse of the law. That's amazing. And I, I hope uh, that that began to fill your heart with wonder last week. And this morning I'm going to seek to give you three more reasons to marvel. And the week after that, three more. So by the time we're done, hopefully we have at least seven reasons this Christmas season to be marveling, to be astonished, to be full of wonder and awe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And my encouragement to you this December is for you to make the following commitment. And it's this. I will make time this Christmas season to marvel. I will set aside time. I'm committed to this, this, this week and this Christmas season, to marvel, to wonder in the Christ, in the Messiah, in our Lord and our Savior. Please don't let December 26th to roll around and be like, what just happened? Don't, don't let this, this season, don't, don't get so caught up in the trappings of Christmas, which is supposed to be about Christ. So don't get, don't get so caught up in the trappings of Christmas without ever spending any time with Jesus. Don't, don't spend so much try, time trying to do every last thing these next couple weeks without ever spending time to marvel and to wonder in Jesus Christ. Instead... Like it says in our text, take a cue from Mary and Joseph, who it seems like at every turn, every corner, they're filled with what? Wonder and awe. Or learn from Simeon and Anna. And those are two fascinating people, aren't they? Uh, but they're filled with awe and wonder. They're great examples to us in, in our reaction, what it should be uh, to the Lord Jesus Christ. But these, these two strange characters, it seems, who just, just kind of pop on the scene, and then they're gone. They kind of remind me of Melchizedek in the Old Testament. He's there, and he's not. <laughs> who is that guy? 
Who's, who's Anna? Who's Simeon? Uh, we know so little about them, but they're so encouraging to us. So reasons to marvel as we look at Simeon and Anna's life. And the first reason is, marvel at this, that God always has a faithful remnant. Uh, that's the first point, if you like to take notes, or if you're following the notes in the outline in the bulletin. Marvel at the fact that God always has a faithful remnant. We see that with Simeon and Anna, right? That God always has a believing people in the worst of places and the worst of times. And I don't want to rehash that a lot. I've, I've said that a lot over the last uh, couple months, but how dark and bad it was for the people of Israel during this time. We often forget that, and I I want to talk about that more next week also. But just it's an ungodly time. The Old Testament teachings were crumbling under the heavy weight of legalism being espoused by the supposed religious leaders, uh, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Politically, you know they're under Roman rule, and yet in spite of all of that, here's two individuals. In In spite of all that that's working against them, here's two individuals, Simeon and Anna, who come on the scene, who are full of expectation and hope and excitement. We'll start with Simeon. Uh, all sorts of speculation is out there about Simeon. Many, many assume that he's old because of verse 29 where he, he basically says, now I'm, now I'm able to die in peace. Uh, but nowhere in the text does it indicate how old he is. That's exactly that. It's an assumption. We don't know how old he was. Others think he was a priest. Again, we don't know. Scripture doesn't tell us a whole lot about him. It doesn't tell us about his job or how old he is. But it does tell us about the most important thing. It does tell us about his spiritual condition. And so we read that he is righteous and devout in verse 25. He's righteous. That means he's conformed to God's expectations. He lives rightly before the Lord. He's, he's like the wise man in Proverbs who fears the Lord. He honors the Lord. He walks blamelessly before God. He wasn't a phony because he was also devout. He was righteous and devout. And devout just means he was very careful and, and sincere about his faith. It means he, he took God seriously. He took him seriously. He didn't just talk the talk. He walked the walk. And right there, he's an encouragement to us. We should all seek to be, by God's grace, righteous and devout. And by the way, those two things go hand in hand. If God has declared you righteous by your faith in his Son, you will be devout. And you cannot be devout unless you have been declared righteous by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But more about Simeon is simply this. He, he's waiting for the consolation of Israel, it says in verse 25, unlike the religious leaders of the day who weren't waiting for that at all. Uh, he took God's promises of the Messianic king seriously. And notice, it also says, like John the Baptist before him, and uh, Elizabeth and Zechariah, uh, the Holy Spirit was upon him. It says that in verse 25 also. As such, he was taught by the Holy Spirit and led by the Holy Spirit. So you can summarize Simeon's life by saying this. He's led by the Spirit of God, he's taught by the will of God, and he's obedient to the will of God. And I'll just pause and say, we could sure use a whole lot more Simeons today who are led by the Spirit of God, taught by the Word of God, and obedient to the will of God. We need lots more Simeons. 
How about Anna? There's a lot we can say about her too, uh, but we see that she's a prophetess. She spent all of her days in the temple, uh, says worshiping and with fasting and prayer uh, night and day. When she sees the baby Jesus, uh, she begins to give thanks to God. Uh, she understands that all those long years, 84 years of fasting and praying for the Messiah to come is finally being fulfilled before her very eyes. And she bursts out in joyous praise. And also filled with joy, she becomes a fervent evangelist, right? And so she, she tells everyone she can, she's talking to everyone she can about uh, the redemption of Jerusalem. That's verse 38. So Anna was singularly, singularly and completely devoted to the service and worship and witness of God. And again, we could use a whole lot more Annas in our church today who have a single wholehearted devotion to God. What I really want us to see, though, is that God never leaves himself without a witness. It's a dark time, a hard time, and here's Anna and Simeon faithfully following the Lord. God always has his remnant. You can study that through the scriptures. It's a fascinating study. He always has his remnant. He had his Noah, who was blameless in the wicked days of his time. Uh, he had his Abraham, who he made the father of Israel, his Moses in Egypt. He had his Obadiah in Ahab's household. Remember Obadiah? He's kind of this unsung hero in the Old Testament. We don't think much about him or talk much about him. But he's the guy who rescues uh, roughly a hundred prophets from being killed by Baal's fervent evangelist, Jezebel. Remember, she's on the hunt and seeks to destroy and devour anyone who doesn't follow Baal. And Obadiah, right under Ahab's nose and Jezebel's nose, rescues a hundred prophets. God has his remnant. God also had his Daniel in Babylon. That had to be terrifying for Daniel. He's a teenager. His homeland has been destroyed. Uh, his people have been slaughtered. Uh, his people have been deported to a strange land. He's given a new home, a new education. Uh, and yet, from ruler to ruler, Daniel was faithful. He's the faithful remnant. God always has his remnant. He had Jeremiah in Zedekiah's court. Uh, Isaiah speaks about the remnant an awful lot. If you read through the I Isaiah, uh, you'll find many references to the remnant. Uh, Isaiah talks about how God has his tenth that he always preserves. And Isaiah 10, 20-22 says, This remnant leans on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, in truth. A remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob, to the mighty God. And we see in our text, again, you have Anna and Simeon, this faithful remnant. You have Mary and Joseph and Zechariah and Elizabeth and the shepherds, this, this godly remnant. And even today we know from Romans chapter 11, verse 5, that God has his chosen remnant of grace. He always has his remnant. And right now, if you are trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are part of his chosen remnant of grace. It's Romans 11, verse 5. So I think this is a very encouraging thought because we, again, are living in very dark times. 2 Timothy 3.13 is coming true right before our eyes. And that verse says, Evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. And perhaps as, as God's church and His Word is assaulted, we, we're tempted to think like Elijah and say, I alone am left. And what does God say? No, you're not alone. 
I have yet reserved 7,000 in Israel who have not bowed the knee to Baal. That's his remnant, isn't it? That's his remnant. That's a comforting thought. I think that's something that should cause us to marvel, that God never leaves himself without a witness. Yes, there may be hard times. Yes, God's church may seem small and outnumbered. Maybe sometimes you're at school and you feel small and outnumbered, like the only one there who believes. Or maybe you feel that way at work, the only one that believes and and you feel alone. But the scriptures say this, the gates of hell cannot and will not prevail against the church of Christ or against God's truth. Always remember this, that God plus one makes a what? A majority. God plus one makes a majority. See, yes, there is difficulty ahead for the church of God, for for the people of God. There are very dark storm clouds. Very dark. But this truth outranks them all. If God is for us, who then can be against us? Amen? This is an amazing truth in Scripture that we learn from Simeon and Anna. That God has planted you and I in a very important time and place. We are, by God's grace, His remnants. We have been called by God to continue His work here. So instead of uh, getting upset and mad about the news, or maybe even criticizing the church, what, what we need to do is resolve to be like Simeon and Anna. They should be our encouragement. They should be our example. We should be like Simeon, who's righteous and devout, who's led by the Spirit, taught by the Word, and obedient to God's will. We should be like Anna, who prayed and worshipped day and night. It doesn't matter if you're young or old. None of that matters. Devote yourself to God. A life devoted to God is a life well spent. A life devoted to anything other than God is a wasted life. Let's be like Anna and Simeon. You won't regret one second lived for God. So whether you're 3 or 13 or 23 or 103, live a life devoted to the Lord. In fact, I'll just kind of mention as as a side note, uh, our text in, in verse... 36 speaks of Anna, 36 and 37 speaks of Anna as being 84 years old. But you'll notice that there's a footnote there. There's a very good chance she's older than that. It's it's a difficult phrase in the Greek to translate. It's either saying uh, she was married for seven years, her husband dies, and then she's, by the time she's 84, she's been a widow for, for that many years. She's 84 years old. Or it's saying, it's saying <clears throat> that she had been a widow for 84 years, meaning she'd been married for seven years and she's been a widow for 84 years. And what age she got married? I don't know, 15, 20? I have no idea. She's, she could very well be 110 and up. That's all that I'm saying. And I'm pointing that out again to say, I don't care how old you are, how young you are, devote your life to God. <laughs> Spend your time devoted to Him. You're not going to regret that. And no matter your age, if you're still alive, God has a plan and a purpose for you. Or you wouldn't be living and breathing. 
He has a great plan uh, for His glory through you. Don't, please don't say or think, I put in my time. I can't stand that phrase. One, because it sounds like prison, right? I put in my time. In what world do we speak about serving the Lord as prison time? <laughs> I put in my time. Good. Put in more. It's devoted to Him. Devote to Him. Be the faithful remnant. What a marvel that would be if God was to fill our church and all of His churches with a faithful remnant like Simeon and Anna. And that's going to happen as you resolve to do so. A second reason to marvel is because God is the promise maker and the promise keeper. Uh, There are a couple of promises within our text uh, that I want to draw out. The first promise uh, that we see God has made and which He keeps is that Jesus is the consolation, or you could say comfort, of Israel. That's verse 25, where it says, Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. Consolation just means comfort. That's all that word means. Comfort. It's a phrase uh, that should conjure up a number of Old Testament verses for you, especially from Isaiah So in Isaiah chapter 40, verses 1 and 2, we read this, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord double for all her sins. Or Isaiah chapter 49, verse 13, which says, Sing for joy, O heavens, and exalt, O earth. Break forth, O mountains, into singing, for the Lord has comforted His people and will have compassion on His afflicted. Isaiah chapter 51 verse 3 says, The Lord comforts Zion. And listen to this. He comforts all her waste places and makes her wilderness like Eden, her desert like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness will be found in her. Thanksgiving and the voice of song. And there's a lot more references like that all through Isaiah chapter 40 through 66. That's a great passage of scripture to read. Isaiah 40 through 66. And again and again and again, you'll read about God comforting Israel. And Israel longing for that that comfort. These comfort-giving promises that yes, Israel for her sin must go into exile. But God will not forget His people. He will draw them out. He will bring them out. And He has a future for Israel that is glorious. He has plans to prosper Israel and to richly bless her. Their future will be so glorious. Isaiah 51.3 says, She'll be like the Garden of Eden. That's pretty glorious. And joy and gladness and thanksgiving and song will fill the streets. And now what we're seeing is how Jesus is the fulfillment of that consolation of Israel. It's what Israel and Simeon and Anna have been longing for. And that begs the question, how? How is Jesus the consolation of Israel? And one obvious way is what we talked about last week. He's redeemed them from the curse of the law. That's of great comfort. Another way in which he will be their consolation is he consoles them politically. The expectation of this Messiah is that he will overthrow the bonds of 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 their oppressor, in this case, Rome. And that he will establish his kingdom forever. That he will give the land to Israel that has been promised, like we talked about last week, from Genesis 12 and 15 and 17. And God has not forgotten that promise, and Jesus will certainly do that, but not yet. 
Before Jesus will restore them or comfort them politically, he must first restore them and comfort them spiritually. And that's his first return, his first coming. As greatly as Israel has been groaning under the weight and shackle of Roman oppression, there is another oppressor who is far greater than Rome that must be defeated, and that is sin. And Christ came to deliver his people from sin. This is why, we'll talk more about it next week, but this is why in verse 34, Simeon actually tells Mary that far from uniting Israel, Jesus is actually going to split Israel in two. He's the divider. This is also why uh, Simeon tells Mary uh, that she'll have great travail and sorrow. This child will indeed redeem Israel, but it will come at a great cost, a great pain. So deliverance will not first come by military might and conquest, but by the death of our Messiah on the cross. And by his death on the cross, he will comfort them spiritually. By his death on the cross and his shed blood, he will inaugurate the new covenant. We don't think enough about that, the new covenant. He'll inaugurate that new covenant with the promise of forgiveness of sin, a new heart, and the indwelling of the spirits. By the way, the order of that is crucial. If Jesus returned and just simply uh, politically restored Israel and and fulfilled those promises of making Israel a great nation. If he did all of that before comforting them spiritually, then Israel would be no better than her oppressor of Rome. Right? If Christ didn't come first to resolve or to comfort that underlying spiritual sickness that's destroying them and rotting them from the inside out, that if he just came back and made them that great nation he promises to make them, that wouldn't be a nation worth celebrating. And so what Christ does is he first comes uh, to give them that new heart. Uh, he comes that they might be righteous and devout like Simeon, uh, to give them forgiveness, to give them the Holy Spirit, which by the way means comforter. Right? The Holy Spirit is our comfort. So Anna points to all of this, if you drop down to verse 38, where she refers to Christ as, as the one waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. I think that term, redemption of Jerusalem, is synonymous with the consolation of Israel. Those are one and the same thing. Christ came to redeem Israel. He came to console her, to comfort her, by redeeming her from her sin, by cutting out the cancer of sin from their lives. Any other consolation? Would be useless. And I just asked this morning, do you know this comfort? Do you know the comfort of knowing that God's wrath has been satisfied? That there is now therefore no condemnation for those who believe and are trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you know the comfort of knowing that your sins, all of them, past, present, and future, are wiped out, blotted out as far as the east is from the west by faith? in the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you know the comfort of knowing you have been redeemed? I'm redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Do you know that comfort? The comfort of knowing that the God of the universe is your loving, heavenly Father. The comfort in knowing that nothing can separate you from the love of our heavenly Father. The comfort of knowing that your future is sealed, it's certain, and it's glorious. 
The, the, the comfort of knowing and being able to say in the hardest of circumstances, the hardest of situations, maybe through the deepest pain of suffering, to be able to say, God loves me. God is for me. God intends this for my good. Even though now it's hard and it's difficult, I know God is good. He intends this for his glory. He intends this to make me like his son. And you find comfort there. Do you know the comfort of the Holy Spirit in dwelling within you? bearing God's fruit within you. And maybe some of you this morning, you're really hurting. You're struggling. You're discouraged. You're lonely. You're afraid. You feel like you're at the end of your rope. Jesus is for you. Jesus is the consolation. He is your comfort. He is your redemption. He's your all. He's your everything. That's the first promise that God has made and kept. The second one, that we see in our text, the second promise that God has made and kept, uh, is that he promised Simeon, by the Holy Spirit, that he would not die until what? Until he had seen the Christ, until he had seen salvation with his very eyes. That's an amazing promise. An amazing promise. Uh, With that promise, Simeon waits patiently day after day, however long that was, we don't know, but one day, Holy Spirit led Simon, or Simeon into the temple. There he meets the desire of his heart. In God's providence, because remember, predestination always keeps perfect time. Always. And so in God's providence, Simeon arrives at the temple uh, while Mary and Joseph are there uh, to see Jesus. His heart soars and he cries out. I, I love verses 29 and 30. Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation. Now as I thought about that, the thought that just nailed me and caused me to marvel throughout this week is do you realize that God has promised the same, almost the exact same thing to you and I? It's really interesting to think about. It's very, very remarkably similar to Simeon, what God has said to us. Just like Simeon, was given a promise by the Holy Spirit, so the Holy Spirit has given to you and I a promise through His Word. And what God promises us in the Scriptures is that if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, that you will see salvation when the Messiah returns. That is remarkably similar to Simeon's, is it not? Hebrews chapter 9, verse 28 says, Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many. That was his first advent or his first coming. And he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. And when Jesus does return the second time to those who are waiting for him, he will then establish that political earthly kingdom, and he will then rule and reign over all the earth with all of his people. So I I, I hope you're seeing that just like Simeon was waiting for the first coming of Jesus because God promised it through the Spirit, we are now waiting for the second coming because of God's promise through the Spirit found in his word. You see? It's the same promise to us. So I just want to ask you, do you have that ache in your soul for the second coming of Christ? That heavenly ache, that anticipatory ache, do you marvel that one day the Lord is returning to those who wait for him to restore all things? 
We sang joy to the world. You catch that part? Far as the curse is found. Restoring the earth. Marvel at that. Don't believe for a second that silly saying that's out there that says this. And if you said this sometimes, I mean you no offense. Maybe I do. I don't know. <laughs> but that saying that's out there, some people are so heavenly minded that they're no earthly good. Are you kidding me? For one, I've never met someone who's that heavenly minded. But when I look at Anna and Simeon, man, they are heavenly minded. And they do a world of earthly good. I would say it's the exact opposite. The people are often so earthly minded that they're no good for God's purposes. I'm deeply persuaded that you and I will never be much use in this life until we have developed a healthy obsession with the next. That Christ is coming. Until, as Jonathan Edwards would say, or with that idea of we need to have eternity stamped on our eyeballs. We need to live with that reality day in and day out, anticipating at each moment of the day. Listen to 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 10 and following where it says, The day of the Lord will come like a thief. That's the second advent. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire. The earth and everything in it will be bare. So what should we do because of that? that that's the Lord's return. What should we do? Second Peter 3, the apostle, the word of God says, Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people should you be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God. That's being heavenly minded. As you look forward to that day of God, you're so focused on that. How then should you live your life? You should live life that's holy and godly. Which is to say, like Simeon, righteous and devout. You see? That, that idea of, of we're so heavenly minded, we're no earthly good. No, let's flip that around and understand, no, maybe you're too earthly minded. You're not living for God's purposes. A hope in the future should fuel us to work hard in the present day. So maybe you heard all those initiatives and you're thinking, why are we doing all that in the middle of this pandemic? And my answer to you would be, that's exactly why we're doing it, because we're in the middle of this pandemic. Holy and righteous lives. On mission for his mission. Point number three, third reason to marvel. And this one takes the cake, maybe. You do not need to fear death. That's the third marvel of Christ. Verse 29. Verse 29, Simeon says, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. And I can remember when I was a young boy, uh, admittedly so, I didn't listen to a lot of my dad's messages. My dad was a pastor, he was a preacher. Uh, I, I slept through a lot of his messages. <laughs> uh, maybe like some of you are doing now. <clears throat> But I can remember my dad, for whatever reason, this, this has stuck with me, whatever he said. I was maybe eight or nine years old. But he, he was talking about how when he dies, what he wants to be known about him. And I remember him distinctly saying when he dies, he wants written on his tombstone to be fully followed the Lord. I think that's a pretty good thing to aim for. 
Uh, but I'm going to take a page out of his book and say, when I die, what I want written on my tombstone, all that I want said is verse 29. Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. What a verse. Seriously, I came really close to just deciding to preach a whole message on that verse, but I'm not going to do that. I'm just going to share a few things from it. Four words or phrases that jump out at me. The first one is the word Lord. Verse 29, Lord. It's not the typical word for Lord. You guys know the New Testament was written in Koine Greek. The typical word for Lord is Kyrios. Not curious. The Kyrios means Lord. But here, and only four other places, the Apostle Luke, by inspiration of the Spirit, uses the word despotes, which means despot. It's a strong word. Basically means absolute ownership and unrestricted authority. It's the word from which we get the word despot. Simeon sees himself as a slave of the sovereign Lord. And remember, slaves have no rights. Slaves belong to their master. Their only obligation is to obey. And I would gladly say with Simeon, what, what, what he's saying here is that God is my despot also. And I would say to my despot, my life is not my own. Do with me as you will. Would you say that this morning? The second word that jumps out of me is that word depart. Depart. Again, that's a fascinating word. It's, it's a word used historically uh, to talk about a sentinel who's been on watch duty all night long. He's been out there all night long on guard duty, watching for the enemy. And he's been faithful. He hasn't nodded off or blinked off. He's been faithful. Uh, he's, he's fulfilled the mission. And so the sun rises, his work is done, and he goes to his commanding officer to be dismissed. And once dismissed, he goes back to his barracks to sleep. Simeon is saying his duty is finished. He has faithfully followed the Lord. He has eagerly anticipated and waited for the Messiah to come. And now that he has personally seen and held the Christ, he is ready to die. To die. It's the picture of what uh, Kevin was talking about earlier of someone uh, being good and faithful, of finishing the race, of fighting the good fight. And I would just ask you, isn't that how you want to go out? Don't you want to go out that way? You want to go out saying, being able to say to God, now let me depart. I faithfully followed you. Now dismiss me in peace. And that's the third word, peace. Simeon is ready to die. Not because he's unhappy or miserable or, or anything like that. It's, it's the opposite. He's ready to die because he's at peace. He's, he's checked off the last item, so to speak, of his bucket list. What was that last item? He has seen salvation. That's verse 30. My eyes have seen your salvation. No fear of death. Why should he be afraid of death? Think about that. He's just held in his arms the conqueror of death. He's just gazed into the eyes of life eternal. You see, all it takes to die well is Jesus. If you want to die well, Jesus is your answer. And he gives you peace. Everybody is going to depart life one day. 
Not everyone is going to depart in peace. But you can depart in peace if you will gaze upon the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. Are you ready to die? There's a great book by Richard Baxter. Uh, it's called The Saint's Everlasting Rest. It was written in the 1600s. It has a super long subtitle. The Puritans love their super long subtitles, sometimes like a paragraph long. <laughs> uh, it's a great book. If you're looking for some holiday reading, it's only about 400 pages. I haven't read all of it. I've, I've read some of it. But on page 224, apparently I made it that far as I read through it. Uh, he said this, I highlighted this. He that fears dying must be always fearing. Because he hath always reason to expect it. And how can that man's life be comfortable who lives in continual fear of losing his comfort? You see, we worship comfort, do we not? We worship safety and security. And if you threaten my safety and security, there's no telling what I'll do. It's very true of us as Americans, right? We bow down to and worship health and safety and comfort. And so we greatly fear death. And Baxter makes that great point. If you fear dying, you must always be fearing. And what I'm trying to help you see is, as a Christian, you don't need to fear dying because Christ has defeated death. He is life everlasting. And we can have peace in him. The fourth phrase that jumps out at me in verse 29 is the wonderful phrase, according to God's word. Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. It doesn't get any more reliable than that. A rock-solid truth by which you may order your days. Praise God, he doesn't have a forked tongue like the serpent in the Garden of Eden. Like Mary before, we should all be able to say, let it be to me according to your word. My days are ordained for me, written in God's book, long before one of them even comes to pass. That's Psalms 139. Therefore, let it be to me according to your word. Until that moment that God has ordained, this is what I jotted down to myself thinking about that. Until that moment that God has ordained, I will seek like Simeon and Anna to live with no retreat, no reserve, and no regrets. I will strive to run the race with all endurance, to fight the good fight of faith, to finish the mission God has given me, that I may one day say to my Lord, my despot, my master, my sovereign, dismiss your servant in peace, according to your word. That's a marvelous thing, isn't it? Our Savior, he's defeated death. We can die in peace. A song we sometimes sing, no fear in life, no fear in death. Jesus commands my destiny. Amen. He commands my destiny. Are you marveling yet? Jesus has fulfilled the law. God maintains a faithful remnant. God is the promise keeper, the promise maker. And in faith in Christ through God, you can die well. You can die in peace. Those are reasons to marvel. Are you marveling at it? Are you full of awe and wonder? How will you take time this week to, to marvel in these truths? How will you take time this holiday season to make sure it doesn't pass you by? And, I don't know, January comes around and you're like, what happened? 
How will you focus on these truths? How will you marvel in Christ? And I would just close with the three marvels of heaven or the three wonders of heaven by John Newton. Maybe maybe you've heard these before, uh, but John Newton said this a long time ago. Uh, He talked about when we get to heaven, the wonders of heaven. He said, first, when we get to heaven, the first wonder will be that there will be many there who we never expected to be there. (laughs) That's a great marvel of heaven. The second marvel of heaven will be, we'll miss many who we thought would be there. So those are kind of serious things. But then he says the greatest marvel, the one that far surpasses them all, is that I'll be there. That God in his grace saved me. That I can be there and worship the Lord and the Savior. That's the greatest marvel. Will you be there? Will you be there? You don't have to guess. You don't have to wonder. You don't have to say, man, I I hope I'll be there. No, you can say with Simeon, Lord, depart in peace according to your word because God's word never fails and He says, if you call upon him and believe, you shall be saved. That's his word. He's the promise maker. He's the promise keeper. That's God's promise. Believe in Jesus and you shall be saved. And you can do that right now. Believe in him with all of your heart. Believe in him. Then you can marvel with the rest of us who say, I don't know why he saved me. I don't know why he called me. I don't know why he chose me. But he did. I marvel. I rejoice. I choose to now live. No regret. No retreat full of wonder in the Lord Jesus Christ. All God's people say,